Welcome to Season 2 of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. Our play of the week is Alfred Jarry's Ubu Hua, sometimes translated as King Turd. It was first performed in Paris in 1896, and it was famous for tearing apart theatre conventions of its time in a performance of bizarre and grotesque violence with puppets and music. It was a satirical critique of the way that power corrupts, and it was so outrageous that a riot broke out on its opening night, although it seems that Jarry might have paid the rioters as a way of drumming up publicity. Declan and Nick staged Ubuhois with a French company in 2013. Here's a synopsis. And be warned, it's a wild one. The play opens with the characters Per Ubu and Mer Ubu, who are plotting a bloody coup against the King of Poland. They murder him, but the Queen and the Prince, Bugrela, manage to escape. The King's ghost tells Bugrela to avenge him. Meanwhile, Mer and Per Ubu are reveling horribly in their power, executing the judges, murdering nobles and stealing their wealth, and taxing the poor. This, unsurprisingly, is not popular. Ubu's second-in-command, Captain Bourdieu, escapes to Russia and persuades the Tsar to declare war. While Per Ubu goes off to fight the Russians, Mer Ubu tries to steal all the treasure in the palace. However, she's forced to run away when Bugrela turns up, leading a revolt. In Russia, Per Ubu is defeated and then gets attacked by a bear in the wilderness. Mer Ubu finds him and pretends to be the angel Gabriel in order to make him forgive her for trying to run off with all the money. As they fight, Bugrela appears in order to try and kill Per Ubu. Per Ubu uses the body of a dead bear to knock down Bugrela, and he and Mer Ubu flee to France. Imagine all of that with lots of blood, sex and sausages, and that's Ubu Hua in a nutshell. The music that you're hearing now was composed by Davi Sladek for the Cheek by Jowl production. And now, over to Declan and Nick. Hello, Declan and Nick. How are you today? Very well. Good. Marvellous. So today we're talking about Alfred Jarry's bizarre and wonderful play, Ubu Hua. And I'd like to dive in by asking how you started work on this play and why you chose it. Because for me, I find it one of the most confounding and difficult plays that I've ever seen as a script. So what first invited you into this amazingly weird and grotesque world? Well, it's a play much beloved by students, and it's written in strange language by Jarry, with lots of childish insults, lots of violence, lots of blood, but has, has like, really seen through a child's eyes. He, he and his friends at school, when he was 11 or 12, Ubu was the name that they gave one of the teachers, and it's like grows out of very childish games with words that kids play and so on. And what is it about that that appeals to you, this mix of childishness and extreme violence? Yes, I wouldn't say childishness and extreme violence are in different categories actually i think that they're very much the same thing and most parents that i know particularly when we're young they're young kids are often quite appalled at the violence of their of their own children and i think that's an important thing to remember rather than 
I think it's really dangerous to think that there's this thing called innocence when before the child knows violence. I think in many respects innocence is about being in tune with your violence. Yeah, I, I don't think innocence is a very useful category. A memory I have, I think, that went into um, doing Ubu. I remember once being on the metro in Paris, and I managed to get a seat, and suddenly plonked opposite me were two kids from the American school, and they were in the middle of a conversation, and they assumed that nobody spoke English around them, which was wrong in my case. They started, and one said to the other, I'd like to tear his head off. And the other one said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get a screwdriver and put the screwdriver through his eyeballs. They were talking about somebody at school, but the mutilations they were talking about were getting worse and worse, and their eyes were bulging more and more with fury, this murderous rage, and a very intense moment because at the court in the middle of this very savage and intimate conversation about somebody that I didn't know. And, and I think that got found its way into the play somehow. So I remember walking into the auditorium to see this play, expecting a sparse open stage, maybe a box, maybe a bench, and was taken aback and surprised and excited to see possibly the most realistic set I've ever seen in a Cheek by Jail production, paired with the most surreal script I think I've ever seen you tackle. So, Nick, could you explain how that came about? Well, everything it was very much interconnected because we were puzzling how to, how to approach this play. And we realised that, of course, we had a wonderful actor called Sylvain Levite, who was in Andromaque, who played, he didn't have a line in Andromaque, but he played a young boy. And he, we thought, that he would be perfect, as it were, as Jarry, the young Jarry, the 14-year-old adolescent, who comes out with all this appalling stuff. And so from that leaping off point, it was through the eyes, through the imagination of this 14-year-old boy played by Sylvain. And if you start from that premise, you quite quickly move to the fact, well, where do they live? His parents and that's quite interesting because if you start to analyze the play you realize kind of it's not about his school teacher it has to be kind of about his parents his mother and father and they become mare and pair ubu it's an easy development from that to arrive at the apartment that we um, and they're giving a dinner party and the other guests arrive and through his eyes we leap from the grotesque world of Ubu to a very refined dinner party. And that dynamic continues through the whole production. And you included a really clever use of a camera here. So our 14-year-old in this production is equipped with a video camera. And through that video camera, reality warps through his imagination. So I remember you starting it with him pottering off through doors backstage with his camera and us seeing sort of yeah. shit stains in the bog mm. and him filming his parents preparing dinner. And as more and more people came in, this ca this camera sort of activated this jump to this grotesque world in which they're all speaking, mm. violent gobbledygook and ripping each other's brains out. Um, and what I found so interesting there was that the camera became an active character in the yes. performance. Mm. That We're very used to seeing cameras and, and live film on stage nowadays yeah. as a way of illustrating things we can't see or uh, magnifying things. But in this case, the camera actually warped reality. I think what was important for us is that there's adolescent rage and that particular adolescent rage that people feel when they perceive their parents to be play acting and they sort of see the pretend adult syndrome of it all. And 
that the energy in the play, the energy in that language, I mean, the vituperation, the violence of it, people's really having their brains mashed up on stage, has to react from somewhere. And Nick and I happened to be, we had a, a, a nice apartment rented for us in Paris, which looked lovely, and it was all painted white and so on. And then when we arrived, we were little notices saying, you know, you can't walk on the floor before 9am, and you can't pull the flush after 11 o'clock. And... It was this flat with masses and masses of rules in it in this sort of bourgeois space. And we kind of reverted to the Ubus, me and Nick in the flat. And there was a big piece of art on the wall that was sort of white on white. Certainly it was, wouldn't be wonderful to spray it with tomato ketchup. And, and then we did it on stage. And bits of it, we actually did film in that flat. But for me, the central thing is the toilet that looks so lovely. And then you get closer and closer and you realize it's not quite clean. And it's that idea of having that sort of hyper-realistic view of your parents. And it's watching your parents put on an act, I think, that's really important. And you kind of know that you're going to have to kind of do a bit of that act yourself, or you're starting to do another act. So actually, they're not the only people in the world who are performing. You end up performing yourself. But there's also this idea of the constrained metropolitan elite life, what it throws under that carpet that's just struggling to come out, what you lock in the closet that's trying to come out and that was basically about a dichotomy and actually trying not to be judgmental about it afterwards we did it in london and, and we had some close friends coming saying wouldn't it be awful if you had a child like that and i was thinking <laughs> i was thinking wouldn't it be awful to parents like that and i'm quite glad about that that you know people have very conflicting views about how to judge it but i think the whole thing of what our life keeps under wraps is very very important and I'm so interested to hear that the set was inspired by the flat that you were staying in mm. in Paris, mm. because we've talked about this before, about suspending setting ideas yes. before you get into rehearsal and the way that you draw on the world around you, the streets you're walking down as you walk into the rehearsal room and how that's informing the life of what mm. you're creating. And it sounds like you sort of found your ubuhois when you arrived. So we must have had the idea beforehand, but the actual fruition of it was the flat that we had. It was amazingly easy to rehearse. So we'd done with those actors, we'd done Andromaque by Racine, which is about engulfing passions, being held at bay through the form of the Alexandrian. And we got to know them very well, and we had a wonderful time with them, and I could see that they were all dying to be funny. They were very funny people. And so we did Ubu, but you know, they're not so different. In a way, they seem utterly different. But actually, they've got one huge thing in common, and that's what do you do with chaotic feelings when they're imprisoned in this Alexandrian, in the Racine, or in this apartment in Ubu. But I think the rage that Jerry feels coming out, this trampling on what it is to be an adult, you know, him saying, I want to be a king of everywhere because I want to eat lots of sausages. It's the reveling in that childishness. I think that's completely fascinating. So this production required something quite special from the actors yes. because you were veering between a highly realistic bourgeois dinner yes. party mm. and these incredible grotesque toddler tantrums yes. when they were being seen through the eyes of your young Jarry character. Yes. How did you manage that in rehearsal? That was actually very simple. The really difficult thing was to get the bourgeois dinner party right because it's not really how I would direct normally. And they had to have character biographies, and I used to interview them in character, sort of things I absolutely don't believe in. And they'd write out biographies, and I remember Xavier Boiffier was a Canadian dentist. And of course, when he says, sweet auntie's Canadian, 
we'll burst out laughing. And then we got we had to stop laughing because we had to take everything very, very seriously. And they were absolutely brilliant to the improvisation, with the exception they just burst out laughing. And what they had to do was achieve consensus at the dinner party so that everything is to not ruffle the feathers of the other person. So the dinner table chat was different every night. It was improvised every night. It was never written. <clears throat> but they'd say things like, um, I, sometimes I like to live in the country, but sometimes it's good to be in the city because in the city you have theatres and many restaurants to go to. But in the country you have nature and you have birds and you have the sunshine, you have the fresh air. Yes, I agree. So they talk like that. And then Christophe... What I'm saying, you know, dans la cuisine, ma, ma femme est reine, mais avec le barbecue, c'est moi. <laughs> and it was which uh, to translate for for yes, yeah, so in the kitchen, my my wife is queen, but when it comes to the barbecue, it's me. And instead of being boring, it was just screamingly funny. <laughs> and what they couldn't do was do it without laughing, and they just had to achieve consensus. And so basically. I would scream at them if ever they burst out laughing and so broke that reality. Or if they ever got loud enough for the audience to hear what they were saying and the audience laugh. So they had to do this really tricky thing of keeping the, the, it animated, but it had to be just like the conversation at the next table in the restaurant that you can't quite hear what they're saying, so it had to be just kept under a hubbub. And I swear to God... 90% of my energy was maintaining that. The mayhem, the blood, the destroying the set, the throwing food everywhere, all of that was so simple. And they just did it because they'd be driven so crazy by this table that they, they were just prepared to go and do all sorts of extreme things. But do you know what was interesting? What was funny, it was never the outlandish things that they did, the sort of mixing each other's brains and so on. If they'd laugh a bit, but the real laugh always came when they returned to the table, when they returned to normality, because you had this flash of, oh my God, that's there underneath the surface. That was the recognition that the audience made. And I think was what was also so delicious about that, those grotesque parts where mm. you... Uh, where we saw these brains being mixed and mm. ketchup going all over the walls to make mm. the mountains, mm. um, was that it was once again what we were talking about in our last episode with Pity She's a Whore, which is that, Nick, you showed us a very a very clear set of cards at the beginning. You know, This is a bourgeois apartment with a very nicely decked out kitchen and some tasteful interior design, out of which you gave us international warfare and bloodshed and corruption and executions. That must have been quite delicious as a process. That was great fun in that having made a choice that you're setting it in an apartment, then you're limited. You're wonderfully limited to all the objects that you have in the kitchen and in the bathroom and in the rest of the flat. And so you can do whatever within those limitations. So you have ketchup, which becomes blood all over the walls, and the food mixer for stirring up somebody's brain. And then he has a coronation. With a, with a lampshade. So you could stir his brains through the top of a lampshade and you wouldn't see what's happening, but you'd imagine his brains being stirred up. By <laughs> and then they taste it to see if it was okay. <laughs> and then they would, he would, at the moment when he gives them lots of money, they got kitchen foil. And of course, argent means money in French and also silver. So they took a tail of the silver foil from the kitchen and just ran around it screaming, argent, argent, money, 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 with the silver foil. That was wonderful. And the actors came up with most of those ideas. We, we all loved doing that, but the real grind... <laughs> <laughs> getting back to that table and having this incredibly boring conversation, which was, which also managed to be very, very funny. One very strange thing about Ubu is that Nick and I schlep out to see it wherever it was playing, and I never had to give any notes. 
It was amazing. It had this incredible autonomy. It just looked after itself. I don't know what it is. It's like there's some monstrous mechanism in, in that world of farce. Well, the other thing that I'd love to hear more about is how you tackled the text in this play, because the actual non-improvised text mm. in this production, Jarry's actual text, is just gobbledygook a lot of the time, that is deliberately well, yes. childish language. And li- Yes, but we do it in the same way that we approach all text, which is that they have to do the syllable exercise. So tell have... us more about the syllable exercise. Oh, well, it's um, the whatever you say... Um, before you go for the meaning of the words, or at the same time, but you must do it as an accompaniment, you must divide each word into its constituent syllables and say them aloud as if they're separate. And and after you've said them separately and felt them a bit separately, then you can put them back in with words. But that always, you come back to the words so much better if you've gone through the separate syllables of the word and listed them on your fingers, you know, absolutely. If you list the syllables and sound them separately... It does incredibly invigorating things. So that was how we approached it, like we do Shakespeare, like we do Racine, like we do Pushkin, like we do Chekhov. You absolutely separate out each out of the syllables, and you get an extraordinary, you learn an awful lot from that. And I think it reminds us of the primitive sources of language that are actually pre-linguistic, that we communicate, first of all, through sounds. And you get wonderful, unexpected spins on words if you do that. But the very worst thing that you can do to rehearse any play, never mind about Jarry, is sit down and determine meaning. Now, there was one scene in this production which has haunted my imagination ever since. And it was one in which you had an actor and an actress together. And the actor was licking the foot of the actress, which was covered in an actual stocking, I think, was mm-hmm. being filmed up close. Mm-hmm. And there was something about a pure physical act that was mm-hmm. happening there, mm-hmm. of seeing a tongue hitting this horribly abrasive surface mm-hmm. and then expanded hugely. Mm-hmm. It was not a pretense at doing something. Mm-hmm. It was a real tongue licking a real stocking. And <laughs> that... that Brought us back to ground zero, right? That in the middle of all of this pretense and grotesquerie mm. and and skewed realities, there was a moment that was just unbearably and simply real. Yeah. And it was deeply unsettling because yeah. you kept on feeling like you were a fish on a hook being yanked between different kind yeah. of levels of perception and, and yes. realism. Yes, that was a very important moment to us that he did that. Well, they were wonderful. Cami and Christoph, you know, would show me all sorts of things. We could do it this way, we could do that way, we could do it the other way. And I was, their unselfconsciously showed me the most extraordinary things. But their inventiveness was, it was so interesting. It was like destroying their inventiveness through this bone-crunchingly boring dinner party. It kind of released it afterwards. Like, I imagine that after this confinement, we're all going to run around sort of jumping on each other and kissing each other and hugging each other because we've just been so withheld by this enforced separation. But that's kind of what happened in it. And yes, it was. And, and you know, bringing the camera in made it hyper-real. And um, I think that's very important. And again, it returns us to something that we were talking about last week in Tis Pity She's a Whore, which is that you were playing with levels of perception. Yes. And where reality was at any one point, that we were seeing the world through the eyes of this extremely 
tortured 14-year-old mm. and we ourselves were seeing the play through our own eyes mm. and playing with where we stood in relation to what was happening yes. and turning it back on us seemed to be something that was very live in the heart of this production. Real life is theatre. And if you think about the theatre of power, for example, which, I mean, Ubu is concerned that he wants to become king, think about the theatre, the absurd crown that and those capes that, that they wear in the House of Lords. They're completely ridiculous. They're totally theatrical. They're theatrical props. I mean, they're jokes, really. And we can take them seriously, or we can see them for what they are. I mean, they are props. They're theatre props. And we can laugh at that, but that's how our power functions. And in your play, instead of real crowns, we end up with lampshades. Exactly. Well, there's no difference, really, in the mind. Yes. It's all about the Wizard of Oz. You pull down the curtain and there he is, just pulling his levers. However, having said that, you know, we need ceremonial, we need ritual, we need respect, we need dignity, we do need those things, but they quickly become hokum, so we need to keep a cold eye on them. And I'd love to go back to a word that you used, Nick, which was you need the limitation of the realistic design to create this key into this incredibly grotesque world. And it seems that this is something that actually runs through this production. The limitation of the bourgeois dinner party creates the explosion of the grotesquerie when they enter Ubu world. And this seems to be something that's fascinating in your work, which is that nothing ever happens without understanding the flip side of what's going on, Mm. the limitation, the Mm. straitjacket out of which the energy is created. Mm -hmm. And that's quite an unusual way of looking at plays, Mm -hmm. I think, is you look at the negative space Mm. that creates the conditions for the thing to happen. Mm. Always, yeah. Nothing is, but that it is not. So you have to the opposite to create the positive. So you can't have this incredible grotesque pantomime without incredibly boring realism. No, you can't, nor would the child Jarry's rage exist if he didn't have something to rage against. So you have to think, what is it overturning? So you need to think, what is the action that creates this reaction? Nothing that we do is an action. Everything that we do is a reaction to an action that happened before. And that action that happened before is also a reaction. And it turns out even the Big Bloody Bang was a reaction to something before. So there is no originating moment that we can make out. And that's what I love about talking about any of these plays with both of you, is that you always look at a door that I've never really approached a play through before, which is, what is the opposite of what's Mm. happening? What's Mm. the flip side? What's the space between the words? What's outside that's allowing us to see this thing happening Uh, in front of us? Yes, space is always a journey between two points. It's not about the point. So you can't put a space on stage unless you're saying it's not another space. No space exists without what it isn't. There's no inside without outside. There's no up without down. I mean, it absolutely requires the other thing to be made. And sometimes you think, well, no, it's just a bit boring. I I don't need to do the... I just want the up, I don't want the down. You think, well, sorry. Um, There's no Ubu without a Canadian dentist. No, indeed not, no. I'm sure there are excellent Canadian dentists. (laughs) I'm not sure if there are excellent Ubus. I think they're probably all despicable. So we've reached the inevitable end of the podcast question, which is, what was your favourite moment or line from this show? My favourite moment was the food mixer in the brain because somehow it keyed into French culture because (laughs) French people, I found often talk about food and somehow 
in fact, the whole production kind of keyed into something very, very French. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of my favorite moments was when Bougrelas is lamenting over his dead mother, and there was a long scene like a melodrama, and we backed it with some La Traviata playing, and it was sort of came over the loudspeakers, and he sobbed and wailed in a very high erratic and, and, and rather fake way. And then there was a segue, and the people in the Ubu play went back into the dinner party. But we realized that they were standing up, and they were listening to a CD of their favorite soprano, singing Violetta in... Um, La Traviata, and um, the father used to pick up the CD sleeve and they'd pass it round and they'd nod sagely in a kind of rather superior way about it. I loved that moment because it was like, oh, it's like the sort of the commoditization of culture, the canning of it, how the, the, the precious process of how we communicate with each other can be um, sold. And also there's sort of that sense of cultural superiority to it. Another moment that I really liked was just before the guests arrive at the dinner party. Christophe, as the father, looked round the room and smiled as if, gosh, I've done really well. <laughs> he did it brilliantly, <laughs> this terrible, complacent smile. And I, I kind of felt like the son that wanted to destroy that totem of complacency and smugness. Another moment that I was fond of was when Christophe, as the father, used to go into the kitchen to get something, and then he used to come back with an apron and take out the guests. And there were three guests, and he'd take them in three groups of three as Ubu. The first were the bankers, and he'd take them into the kitchen, and then you'd hear this... He had a chainsaw in the kitchen, the sound of a chainsaw. (laughs) A terrible chainsaw in the kitchen. (laughs) And terrible blood-curdling screens. And he'd come out again covered with the, the... apron covered in blood and then from the, the other door the same three actors would come in again and this time they're going to be um news media people and he'd ask them some questions and then he'd say a la trappe a la trappe means down the hatch and he'd take them out and there'd be even louder blood curdling screams as he dispatched them out of sight and then he'd come back again with even more blood on the apron and the last one was the judges it wasn't extraordinary how much the audience loved those blood curdling screams and the louder the screams were the more the audience laughed and it's interesting because of course the the root of comedy is pain whether we like it or not it's we have empathy towards it in a tragedy but in comedy on the whole we end up laughing at other people's pain i'm afraid Basically, what happens is that he was killing off any possible opposition in the country, and and he was dispatching with his potential enemies or any potential opposition. Something we borrowed from medieval mystery plays, which is that when Herod rages in the crowd, um, we had Ubu come off stage and he'd have a quick rage around the audience and throw insults at whoever was hosting us in whichever country, be it Mexico or Moscow or whatever. But in New York in 2016, we had variations on, on the theme of, you know, you're laughing at me now, you won't be laughing anymore after you've laughed Trump into the White House. And that's where we're leaving you for today. If you want to check out some photos of Cheek by Jell's production of Ubu Hua, take a look at the archive on the website. There's a link in the podcast notes. This series theme music was composed by Paddy Kanin for Cheek by Jell's production of A Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Davi Slavek for Ubu Hua. Join us next week when we will be discussing William Shakespeare's As You Like It. Until then, stay well. <laughs>